Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Plot Lines. I'm your host, Connor, and with me back is John. Thank you, Connor. Good to be back. So uh, if you like what we've been doing on Plot Lines, especially as of late, please like, share, and subscribe. Uh, coming soon is also a Discord channel, so watch out for that. We will be on that. Well, I'll be on it at least, and uh, I'll be able to take questions or you know, just interact with you guys more. Um, but for today's guest, we have Father Thomas Green, OP, to discuss uh, his book on integralism. And um, Father is currently located at the uh, Priory of Leicester, or in Leicester, and he is uh, a theologian and as well as a professor. Word from our affiliate, Bishop Sheen Rosaries. You've probably worn through the chain of your cheap plastic rosary. Other rosaries simply can't stand up to the wear and tear of everyday life. Bishop Sheen Rosaries are made of solid metal beads and paracord to withstand any condition and are backed with a lifetime warranty. Upgrade your rosary to a Bishop Sheen Rosary made to fit your lifestyle or buy one for a friend. Each rosary sold supplies two weeks of food for a school kid in Uganda. You use the exclusive link down below to help support our efforts here at Plotlines. The link will take you to sheenrosaries.com. Be sure to use the code PLOTLINES10. Welcome, Father Crean. It's great to have you with us. Thank you very much. It's nice to be here. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so, you know, we're here to talk about your book, Integralism, as just as well as the philosophy of, you know, pol well, political philosophy in general. But uh, how was it uh, like writing a book with a co-author? Oh, well, it was a challenge in the sense that we both had to agree about everything. Um, and that we had very... Uh, long and uh, sometimes quite intense uh, discussions. We, we were living on different, uh, and indeed still are living on different continents because uh, Alan Finister, my co-author, is currently living uh, in the US and I'm in England. Um, uh, and there was a, I think a seven hour time difference between us so that sometimes made it difficult to uh, coordinate, but it was extremely um, rewarding. And I think, um, well, I certainly learned a lot from my discussions uh, with Alan, and um, it was, uh, I think, a very good experience in the sense that um, it's always good to have someone uh, looking at your work from outside. Uh, and if it's a co-author, then he's someone who's more invested in, in that work than anybody else could be. So right. it's a particularly good discipline, I think. Yeah, especially with the time difference. That must have been very difficult. Yes, um, it was sometimes. And we had some quite mammoth sessions as well, maybe five or six hours at a time as we were getting towards the end of the um, end of the, the writing process. Uh, uh, and sometimes we could be stuck on a, on a single sentence for about an hour. Remember that happening once or twice. Wow. Uh, uh, we would not be quite quite coming at things from the same direction sometimes and um and it would be arguing over the nuance of this or that word yeah. that's that, a very uh, entertaining yeah, that, experience 
that's kind of crazy. It's like sort of having to agree on words is probably the most sort of bizarre thing that like you nobody probably thinks about generally. Like, you know, especially, I mean, I would say, I would assume anybody who can write a book such as you guys did sort of has very particular language and writing style that like, you know, you almost want your writing style a certain way and the other person's going to want a certain writing style and sort of meshing the two sounds pretty difficult. Yes, well, we started off um, well, at the very beginning, we, we thought we might try to each write a version of the same chapter, uh, but very quickly we decided that this was rather too lengthy a process, so we decided effectively to take alternate chapters, or at least to we, we portion the chapters out between us, and each of us wrote a draft. But that draft was then commented on by the other, and then the first person commented on the comments and so on. And so by the end, when we were discussing it over Skype, um, it was really um, it was really a, a joint, very much a joint process. Uh, I suppose it helped that we have read quite a few of the same authors, and by no, by no means uh, there's no by no means a perfect overlap between us. I probably read more in the line of um, let's say scholastic authors. So. Uh, so say authors after the time of St. Thomas, but writing in the tradition of St. Thomas. Uh, Alan is, um, as well as a theologian, he's a, he's a historian, which I'm not, and he's got a, um, a wide knowledge of, of um, patristic uh, history and also of um, uh, the Byzantine Empire. So that was a very, um, uh, a very useful uh, input, especially if it's a it's a it's an area of, of interest that's not, uh, I think, often shared by people who write about St. Thomas. They often don't know that much about the, you know, the history of the Byzantine Empire, mm -hmm. but uh, yeah. uh, Alan, Alan does. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so since we're so here so to we're talk, here. About, since we're here to talk about, uh, you know, political philosophy, why is it important for us to talk about and learn about political philosophy? Like why, why, why did you write this book? Why did I write the book? Well, um, the immediate catalyst was that I'd been teaching a course on political philosophy to some undergraduates in Ireland. And well, for one thing, I, I was learning as I was teaching the course. And uh, when I'm, I'm learning something, I often find that writing about it is a good way to um, crystallize my own ideas. And also, I felt that there was no one book that I could really guide them to, that I could really point to as, as giving a, an account of the main ideas of political philosophy from a, a Catholic and a Thomistic perspective. So um, I thought it would, be, uh, it would be nice to have a go at writing such a book. Uh, and my co-author was, um, uh, teaching and had been teaching um, uh, Catholic social doctrine for several years uh, at a seminary uh, and then before that in, in a theological institute in Austria and so we'd been having a lot of discussions about these kinds of ideas over the years but we never got to the stage of, of trying to really order them all uh, in a logical way um, so that, that was the background I, I also have had for a a number of years a particular interest in the theme of, of religious liberty because i don't know if you know but this is one of the 
really the hot topics of the last few decades uh, in, in the church. So the last um, ecumenical council, the Second Vatican Council, uh, gave an important teaching about religious liberty. Uh, but ever since then, there's been lots of questions about A, what exactly it meant, and B, exactly how it fits in with the previous uh, teaching documents or whole tradition of the church. Um, because the, the tradition of the church is very much in favor of um, those with political power using it to help the mission of the church. And at least prima facie, it can seem to be a, a tension between that and the, the idea of religious liberty. So this is something that I've been thinking about for a number of years. And um, one of the things I, I was wanting to do in the book is to, to try to um, unravel these various uh, knotty problems. Father, I, I think it'd, it'd be important for our listener to know, like, why, why do you think we need, like, government? Why do we need an authority to, you know, kind of tell us what to do? Oh, that's an interesting, I didn't normally get that question, but, um, <laughs> well, I think the first thing to say is that even though those in authority can use their authority badly, or they can annoy us in various ways, we shouldn't think of government itself as, a, as an evil, mm. or even as a necessary evil, but as um, part, of the, part of the natural order of things as willed and created by God. Uh, so as, as, as we learn from Genesis, God created man to, uh, to, to rule over the, the garden. And I think that he would have had, Adam would have had uh, a political authority uh, as over his, over his offspring as well. I think he would have been the king and the high priest of creation if he'd remained unfallen, just as, as our Lord, the new Adam is, is king and high priest in a, in a higher way. Um, more, more concretely, we could say that uh, individual human beings are engaged in earning a living and or making a living in some way and looking after their family, bringing up their children, uh, saying their prayers, meeting their, their friends, pursuing their hobbies. Uh, but they're also by nature social animals. They, we, ne we by nature desire to live in a a society that extends beyond our own family, uh, which is uh, what we call temporal society, made up of a union of families. Uh, and that needs to have some kind of structure. It needs to have some kinds of um, uh, laws, and it needs to have someone looking after it. And that's what government is. It's, it's um, uh, looking after the... Uh, this union of families we call society so that it doesn't uh, either break up or or descend into chaos or into civil war uh, i think is this the simplest answer yeah there's just a there's just a huge sort of push for uh the belief that you know uh that government is illegitimate entirely and that you know nobody should be ruling us and you know, at some points, not to this, not to that fullest extent, but to some degree, I you know, I've fallen into that over the years. Uh, previously, I uh, and it took a while to uh, 
come sort of come completely around to a sort of um, the in integralist manner of thinking, but it really is a prominent uh, position these days. Why do you think that is? Um, well, I think probably because in in the modern world, uh, what we find is um, governments that are over centralized and that there is a lack of what we call subsidiarity. So subsidiarity, the idea that um, decisions should be, making, should be made at the lowest level possible rather than at the highest level. Um, so in, in most modern countries, we have, uh, for example, uh, governments presuming to dictate the, the syllabuses of uh, education for uh, all children. And um, you very much um, in Britain, you have the idea, so it's sort of in the air very much now, or perhaps could you say even in, worse than in the air and in the soil, that um, bringing up children is basically the business of the state. And the state might decide to let, let parents uh, do a bit of it, or even do a lot of it. But that's the state's decision. So, so you, you, you find that the question being framed in the way of, um, should we allow parents to choose their schools? Should we allow parents to educate their children at home? Uh, as if it was a decision of the government whether or not to allow such a thing. And that's, of course, a completely upside down way of looking at things. It's the business of parents to educate their children. And if they should decide to hire servants, such a, whether a state officials or uh, private uh, servants, private teachers, to help them do this job, then that's parents' decision. Uh, so there's a, there's a healthy reaction, I think, against government overreach. But as with all overreactions, uh, as with all reactions, there's the nature of human, human beings, uh, that reaction can easily become an overreaction. And I think going into the direction of, of libertarianism, and wanting to abolish the state, or at least considering the state as being per se an evil or necessary evil, I think that's an overreaction. Yeah, you you mentioned sort of the family and it, uh, the assault on the family by the government, uh, and so it really makes me think of the the um, you know the basic unit of of society. So will you explain what the basic unit of society is? Uh, right. So. The that phrase, the, the basic unit or basic cell of society uh, comes in uh, in the um, papal teaching, I think, in the 20th century. Um, so it's, uh, and it, it's, it's the family uh, is, is what's meant by that phrase. Um, and that, um, that, that phrase, I think, is coined by by the popes, or at least by those summarizing the papal teaching, uh, probably in the context of education, um, and uh, to express this idea that because parents have have brought their children into the world, uh, it belongs to them first and foremost to um, to prepare their children for adulthood, prepare their children to take the um, take their place in society. Uh, so, so children don't come un, under the authority of the state directly, immediately, they're under the authority of their parents. Uh, now, if their parents prove to be incapable of doing that job for some reason, maybe they're 
the parents are feckless or something like that, then the uh, other other authorities will have to step in. But that's very much a, uh, an extraordinary and abnormal um, state of affairs. Uh, yeah. So it's also connected with the idea that um, uh, the marriage itself um, is not a creation of the state. So it's not it's not the state that decides that there is going to be such a thing as marriage, and these are these are its laws. The state that decides marriage is going to be an indissoluble contract or a dissoluble contract, or it's going to be dissoluble if there's a fault on both sides or one side or something like that. No, uh, marriage is what it is because God is what He is. That's to say, it's a reflection of the very nature of, of God Himself. Uh, that human beings are what they are, and that they. Um, uh, have to bring up their children in such a way. Uh, so it's um, it's marriage which precedes uh, political power uh, and um, gives rise to, therefore gives rise to it. It's the union of families which constitutes uh, a temporal society. Yeah. Um, I have actually a scenario that I recently heard from somebody about sort of a... Uh, parents that basically uh were you know were, you know they were baptized catholic you know the, you know, the parents were um but they uh have no intent to letting or having their kids baptized until they're like old enough to like basically confirmation their their understanding of baptism is basically confirmation where it's um you know, their duty to wait until they know what's going on to be baptized. Um, would it be uh, sort of valid in that sense? Because since the parents are Catholic, or I guess since the war, well, are in the sense that they were baptized, but um, that uh, would it be of like the, what's the word? the authority of the church in a sense to uh to say that those parents are uh not uh raising their kids properly or or losing some sort of authority over those kids for basically uh, leaving their kids open to uh death or you know de death without being baptized for like 15 you know years or whatever um, so are you saying, are you asking whether, whether the, say the bishops, the bishop of that diocese where those parents live would have a right to, or to separate their, their children from the parents or what he should do? Is, is that the Yeah, that's question? kind of my, uh, yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, well, uh, I mean, he has, uh, the right to impose certain sanctions on them if they're not performing their Christian duties. Uh, and one of the duties, one of the most important duties of the Christian parents is to uh, obviously to baptize their children and raise them, uh, raise them as, as Catholics. Um, it would, um, it would seem like a rather drastic step to talk about separating yeah. the children from the parents i think um uh and you, you could also i mean you could also wonder whether it would be likely to have its desired effect anyway uh 
whether it would be more likely to create a, a resentment in the, in the children against against the church and that's uh, going to be counterproductive um, uh, i mean there are certainly spiritual penalties that can be applied to the parents like um you know uh excommunication for a, a certain period um and i suppose if they're not practicing the faith themselves and that's not going to not going to bother them uh fortunately um, is but, it uh, within the bishop's uh authority at least even like we don't have to necessarily or you know figure out whether or not it'd be the right decision to do but would it be under the spiritual authority at, as you said it out in the book uh would it be under his spiritual authority to uh to step in and make sure sure they children get a, a, a well the thing is the children are not baptized the children yeah. are not under his authority so uh, slightly it's the, a weird, it's the parents uh, who are um, yeah so um he can uh uh he I mean, as, as in the situation outside Christendom, so where there is no, where, where, the, where the temporal power is not cooperating with, with the church, obviously all he can do is, is to impose some kind of spiritual penalty, such as excommunication. Uh, uh, in, a, in a Christendom situation, uh, where the political power would be willing to cooperate with, with the hierarchy, um, well, it's a question I, I'd have to think about, to be honest. I, I, I don't want to say that it's not within his authority, mm -hmm. because uh, obviously they are create, they are committing a, uh, a serious breach of duty. Um, but I'm just wondering whether there are historical examples of, of bishops doing such a thing, and, and offhand, I don't know the answer to that. Yeah. But uh, kind of go back to where you talk about when uh, when you talk about the family as the basic unit of society. You were bringing up some like uh, interesting examples of like school choice and uh, the parents kind of rights over their children. And I, it's kind of ironic because a lot of that is uh, a lot of hot topics in today's society in America. Yeah. Um, but I was just curious if you think like do families or individuals have an authority over the government? Like certainly there's steps that they can take like voting people out in or out um sort of that in that way but like at a certain point like when does the family kind of i don't know are they like more do they have more authority than the government uh, to put it like that well yes it's it, in one sense it depends on on the constitution of the society mm. so in, in, in a democratic society then they've got the authority in the sense that they can uh, vote for, for uh, some other people at election time. Uh, in general, um, uh, in general, the, the, the authority of the rulers does not as such depend on the continuing consent of the governed. Um, even if in a given society they have the right to uh, determine who the bearers of, of power are who to vote for their you know their congressmen or their members of parliament um what they're doing uh there is to designate the people to whom god himself mm. confers the, the right to govern uh 
And that's why, uh, unless they've got a, a particular constitutional setup allowing this, they can't just decide, uh, say, in the middle of a, of a term of office, they can't just say, we're, we're fed up with this man, we're going to put somebody else in instead. Mm -hmm. uh, on the other hand, uh, uh, we, so we, are, we argue in our book that um, it is possible for uh, government to de degenerate into tyranny uh, mm -hmm. to such an extent that it's, um, it's, it's making clear that it's not no longer interested in in doing what it exists to do to govern for the the good of the of uh, of the common good. Mm -hmm. um, so it seems to it seems to me that there is such a thing as as rulers effectively discarding their own authority while trying to cling to the uh, the brute power. Mm -hmm. uh, and in that case. Uh, uh, I don't rule out the, um, I, I don't like using the word revolution because I think it's got bad connotations, but I don't rule out, let's just say, an unconstitutional uh, change of, of power. But gotcha. the things I think have to get pretty desperate before that can be contemplated. Right, yeah. Things are, you know, it, or it's hard to measure that. And like most revolutions that we, think of at you know like in the western world would uh i would say probably aren't don't qualify for such a uh change of power uh what do you think do you think like in regards like to the specifically american revolution i guess but uh and i think definitely not the french revolution so what do you what do you think about that um well, I think that uh, historically, the revolutions have tended to be uh, revolutions against Christendom. Uh, and that's why, uh, that's one of the reasons I, I, I dislike the word. Yeah. Um, so, uh, It's, um, I mean, it's really uh, something that can, can only be legitimate, can only be legitimate, I think, to displace those who are in power uh, if they are really uh, uh, effectively destroying their own society. Uh, I'm, I'm not. I'm not sure that that can be applied to uh, uh, revolutions uh, in the Western world uh, that, that we've seen in the last couple of hundred years. Um, I mean, St. Paul gives us the the basic principle in, in Romans 13, where he says, uh, um, as you know. Submit to the higher powers, because there is no power uh, but from of God. Uh, and he says, do this not just for, uh, not just to avoid punishment, but for conscience' sake. Um, and the man who was in charge in Rome at that time was was one of the most evil rulers in the whole of history, is uh, Emperor Nero. And it's 
no doubt providential that, that God inspired St. Paul to write those words uh, when there was such a bad uh, ruler in charge of the empire. Uh, so, um, I mean, I mean, it's true that the Nero's iniquity was, as far as I know, essentially on a, on a personal level. But I mean, he was uh, he was also degrading the um, uh, uh, the daughters of of um, some of the leading men of Rome just for his own entertainment. Uh, and yet, Saint Paul uh, doesn't countenance uh, any kind of rebellion. And to be honest. There's very little in the tradition of the church that would do so. Uh, so in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, published in the 1990s, you get, uh, I think, one or two sentences on this subject, which basically uh, assimilate um, this question to that of just war. Uh, as you know, there are certain criteria that have to be fulfilled for just war has to be uh, the evil has to be certain and, and enduring, and the uh, likelihood of, of uh, success must be high, and it mustn't be a danger of doing more evil than the, the already suffering. Uh, and, and so the Catechism of the, of the Catholic Church says in such conditions, uh, you know, such activity is, is legitimate. Uh, but it's interesting that there's no footnote. Uh, normally, there's a footnote to almost everything in the Catechism to some if not to a passage in scripture, to a paper encyclical, or to consider a document, or to a writing of a father or doctor of the church. Uh, and this is a rare case where, where there is no footnote. Uh, and if, if Cardinal Ratzinger, uh, as he then was, was correct when he said that um, things don't have any authority simply in virtue of being in the catechism, that the catechism is just a collection of things which already have authority, uh, then that would seem to follow that there is no uh magisterial uh support for um for this this idea of of uh armed armed revolt um which is not to say that it's been absolutely ruled out but you can see it's um it's something that there's uh, the church is at least very very wary about yeah uh interesting enough that makes me sort of think about the recent changes in the catechism regarding the death penalty. And that's one of the most controversial changes. And if I'm right, there's also no uh, uh, reference really to anything regarding that, or is there? Uh, there may be a, a, a reference to a, a speech by Pope Francis uh, about the death penalty, but I don't think there's any other, any other reference. So, yeah, so I mean, so if Cardinal Ratzinger is right about, uh, or was right about that, it would do you think it's the same sort of situation, except for you know, you know maybe obviously there's, um, you know reasons for not using the death penalty and having the death penalty, but that it's not a strictly, uh, you know, um, I guess uh, something to be always avoided. I guess. Yes, I, I, I would say that the legitimacy and principle of capital punishment is something that is contained in divine revelation in both the Old and the New Testament. Uh, and it's been uh, you know, peacefully accepted as part of the, uh, the ordinary magisterium of the church. Uh, 
So I, I think that Catholics should believe that capital punishment can be legitimate in, in principle. Uh, and they can disagree in practice about its application. Um, uh, that particular amendment or, or in, in the catechism, to me, it seems to be internally incoherent. Uh, but in, in any case, uh, um, in any case, I think I think that the tradition is is clear enough. Yeah. So, so uh, what would you or so would you mind giving us a basic uh, understanding of the different types of government? As you mentioned, sort of democratic, more democratic government. So, what are the others? Yes, yeah, so the, well, his, historically and, and classically, going all the way back to uh, to Aristotle, uh, as you know, there's uh, this threefold distinction of government that gets made between the, well the the Greek terms uh, monarchia, uh, aristocratia, and uh, democratia. So, uh, sorry, not not democratia. That's the um, that's the corruption of the uh, democracy, democratia uh, is the Greek word. Uh, but in any case, so the idea is, at least in the, uh, the beginning, the idea is that you can have uh, one person in charge, then it's a monarchia, whether or not it's hereditary is, is another question, or you can have a, uh, a sort of elite group in charge, however they conceive, whether they're particular um, class, social class, whether in particular um, uh, of particular descent, of noble group, or whether they're you know, people deemed to be particularly uh, uh, intelligent. So this is uh, Plato's idea, ideal of philosophers. Uh, and then there's the, um, the, the ideal of having, as far as possible, everybody in charge, everybody governing uh, themselves, everybody governing the city. So uh, now, this is a bit more plausible in Aristotle's context of a, of a small Greek town effect uh, governing itself than it is in our in our modern world. Uh, but um, essentially, those are the those are the three kinds of government that get discussed by philosophers down the ages, uh, and then you get um, various refinements and uh, the idea put forward by someone like Saint Thomas. Aquinas, that um, the ideal is to have a blend uh, of these three things, and he uh, he thinks this is what um, God provides for the people of Israel uh, in the in the old law. Uh, so um, you have uh, you have uh, a blend of of monarchy. Uh, in the sense that you've got, uh, since you've got the king in Israel, uh, or before that, one of the judges, uh, and then you've got a, a kind of aristocratic element, uh, in not necessarily in the sense of uh, noble families. Uh, they, they they do inevitably tend to come into being, seems by human nature over, over the generations, but in the sense of the Sanhedrin, um, which is the the heir to Moses's. Um, 70 elders that he had helping him in the government. Uh, but then you've got a democratic element in the sense that anybody can be, um, anybody can be, uh, 
can take their part in, in the Sanhedrin. Anybody can be chosen to be a, uh, to have a part in government. Um, so the, 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 so there are benefits to, to all these different systems and uh, there are disadvantages as well. But it seems to be that, uh, that, it, that um, some element of monarchy is, is almost unavoidable uh, just because of, of unity being the, uh, the precondition for everything else in society. Unless society is, is one, it, it can't stay together. Uh, and uh, the unity is more easily produced uh, by one than by many. So uh, hence we have uh, one prime minister or one president and so on. So situations like the Roman Republic where you have two people in charge are obviously very rare and, and even they, they took it in turns uh, year by year. Um, it's yeah, so and I, I, it also seems to be the it seems to be according to nature, uh, and this is also part of the teaching of Leo the Thirteenth, who's uh, one of the big influences uh, on our book. Uh, it seems to be in accordance with nature that, as far as possible, everybody take some should take some share uh, uh, in government, and uh, if that can't be by by meeting together in the town square, as it would have been in in fourth century Athens, it can at least be by by electing representatives. So in that sense, democracy, while not being uh, uh, required by natural law is, is uh, certainly very fitting uh, and in, in accordance with uh, with human nature uh, where possible. Yeah. It, it's kind of funny yet sad that you mentioned the prime minister uh, in regards to monarchy, yet the monarch, uh, the queen, was, is not uh, sort of doesn't seem like the uh, real monarch of the, uh, the British government. Yes, well, technically she is in the sense that nothing can become a law uh, unless it receives royal assent. But um, it's been a very long time indeed since anything that was voted by parliament didn't receive the royal assent. Uh, I think um, uh, about a hundred years, about a hundred years ago, the king of the day uh, um, was unhappy with the uh, decision of Parliament to uh, introduce life peers as well as hereditary peers, and he was uh, making noises about uh, not signing this uh, this bill. But he was warned that it could it would be a revolution uh, if he didn't. I don't know whether that was true or not, but in any case, uh, uh, he decided to sign it. Uh, and since then, I, I don't think there's been any serious uh, example of a of a monarch. Uh, not signing a piece of legislation. I mean, lots of people wish that uh, uh, the present queen had not done so in regard to the, the Abortion Act in 1967 or in regard to the, um, uh, what I call the, the Abolition of Marriage Act, uh, the Same-Sex Marriage Act more recently. Uh, she probably conceives it as her duty to sign whatever is put before her, I imagine. Yeah, yeah, that does seem like the way she uh, leads um, yeah, no. um, if I, if you could go into a little bit more of like, why does St. Thomas Aquinas think um, a monarchy is the best like system of government? Sing single type of government. Yeah. Well, he um, thinks 
that it's uh, it's the most unifying form of government. Uh, so he talks about peace as being um, that which rulers should aim at above all. Um, uh, peace uh, in in the very um, I think he's got in mind a very deep sense of the word, so not just not being any fighting going on, but right. the harmony when every every part is in its place and doing doing what it should. Mm -hmm. um, and he takes it to be obvious that um, that uh, when the, when there is a monarch in the sense of a single ruler, uh, because he's um, because he is one. He is more able to produce uh, uh, unity uh, and therefore peace in the society that he governs. So he he he's got an interesting argument that um, uh, that so there's this idea that the corruption of the best is the worst, uh, and obviously if if monarchy in his sense is the best, then it would follow that uh, a tyrannical monarch or a tyrant tyrant uh, would be the worst, right. um, which he says is true in the abstract, but he thinks in practice um, doesn't quite work out like that. Uh, and it's worse to have uh, a group of a, a group of people at the top competing for supreme power, mm. um, because that sort of sets up a permanent state of faction within society, uh, which means we're always on the brink of civil war. Where he says, even if you've got a tyrant, um, even if the man in charge is a tyrant, in practice, he's not going to be acting as a tyrant all day long. He's going to be doing uh, a number of good things. Uh, and so it's normally better, he thinks, to, uh, to put up with a tyrant rather than to, rather than to get rid of him. That's uh, interesting. He also thinks it's, it's um, uh, a represent, it better represents the, the, govern, the government of God so God, right. of course, is, is one. And so God's government over the universe in that sense is a monarchy. Uh, so he probably thinks it's easier for people to, to, uh, to understand that people with political power are um, receive that power from God if in some way their, their rule resembles that of God. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's stated in the book uh, and I think that it's a quote from Aristotle about it's easier to find one good person to rule than for many to, than to find many good people to rule. Is that is that am I quoting correctly? Sort of. Uh, there there is a line like that in in uh, in Aristotle. There he's I think the immediate context text of that is. Uh, the rule of law, the importance of, of the rule of, of law, uh, in the sense that you just need um, uh, one person to, if, if he's if he's got the political power, one person to uh, institute a good law. Uh, whereas if you have um, only judges uh, trying you know, each each case without uh, a law to guide them, then they. Uh, then they have to be good every time. Whereas if, if you've got a good law, then your judges can be fairly mediocre, but provided they've got um, 
provided they're basically honest and decent, they can still do a good job. Yeah, I think that seems to be a bit of a problem these days. Is judges aren't really following the law. They're just following themselves. They've kind of taken it upon themselves seemingly to do the opposite, to act as there's no law. Yes, so I mean, historically, it's understood that there's three branches of, of government. There's the judiciary, the legislature, and the executive. Um, so uh, I think one, one of the things that we, we suggest in, in, in the book is that when a, a society becomes uh, disunited, uh, uh, and say a democratic society becomes disunited, and the elites become discontented with the uh, with the, the masses, as it were, uh, and discontented with the representatives elected by the people, then, then the judges are liable to take it upon themselves to uh, uh, to interpret, in quotation marks, the law uh, according to their own mentality, uh, and in, in practice to be, to be acting as legisl legislators and not just as judges anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, uh, it seems to me that there's uh, sort of this interesting argument that Bellarmine and Aquinas make sort of against, or not necessarily, not always against necessarily, but just ambiguous or less interested in like hereditary rule. Um, but given sort of the historical like stability of hereditary rule, why do you think the, the um, at least specifically Bellarmine and sort of ambiguously um, um, or maybe ambiguously Aquinas sort of makes uh, those arguments? Um, why, why, they, why they're not certain about the value of hereditary yeah. monarchy, is that the question? Um, yeah. Yes, it was very interesting that St. Thomas writes a whole book, I mean, it's quite a small book, but it's, it's nevertheless a book, about kingship, called De Regno, on the kingship, uh, making arguments for monarchy, but never mentions the idea of, of heredity. Um, now, he's certainly not ruling it out, but he's got other examples in mind. So in his, in his time, you've, you've got, of course, hereditary monarchs, king of France or king of England, uh, but you've also got elected monarchs, um, uh, such as the... Um, uh, the Holy Roman Empire, Holy, Holy Roman Emperor, or the rulers of, of uh, Italian city-states. Um, so he doesn't he doesn't address the question at all, as far as I know. Um, and um, uh, it's an interesting question why he doesn't. Uh, yeah. Perhaps um, perhaps he just um, uh, didn't have time. It might be something as simple as that. He was a very busy man. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously there are there are advantages and, and disadvantages as, as in all human things. Um, I mean, Bellamine uh, makes uh, I think makes sort of points going in opposite directions. Um, one of which is that um, uh, the obvious one that. Uh, Hereditary monarch is uh, is the luck of the draw. You might get a you might get a a very mediocre person. Uh, you might get a 
a brilliant person. Um, you don't know what you're going to, what you're going to get. Um, but the other point he makes is that the person can be prepared from boyhood for for office, uh, and also uh, I don't think he makes this point, but it's an important point because he knows he's going to be there for life. Uh, he doesn't need to be um, doing things which are going to please uh, the masses, but which are going to be bad in the long run. He can take the long view. Uh, and another, another advantage of hereditary monarchy, I think, is that it puts the family in the, the forefront of people's minds and it gives a certain um, concreteness, I would say, to this rather theoretical point about the family being the, the unit of society. If there is a royal family, governing family, um, then gives a lends a kind of familial atmosphere to the entire to the entire nation. I think it helps helps to bind the uh, the people together. So it's so these are some of the advantages and disadvantages and um, to some extent it may be a matter of temperament which people prefer. Uh, you know, in, in general if something is, is working uh, then then it shouldn't be disturbed. That's another uh, important consideration. Yeah. Makes sense. Uh, it, stability seems to be the uh, like no, almost one of the most like most important factors regarding um, like a good government. If you have a good government, keeping it stable, you know, not messing not messing around with it seems to be uh, you know what to me a good standard. Um, so we've discussed a little bit about, like we've discussed the different types. We talked about democracy or sort of what, or what's the original uh, version like that's not democracy technically? Well, Aristotle uses the, the phrase uh, timocracy, timocracy. Uh, which um, it was connected with a Greek word for honor, but it seems in his, uh, in his language to refer to um, um, a certain people who, who have a certain um, income, uh, so it's it's not actually in his in his vocabulary. It's probably not uh, absolutely everybody. It's certainly not the slaves in in the Greek in ancient Greece. They're certainly not voting, uh, but it's let's say it's householders, people who who have sort of the the income of a, of your average householder. Uh, so so in his language, that's the that's the rule by the many. Uh, and he uses the word democracy to refer to the corruption of that when when the many are ruling for their own their own interests and uh, against the uh, against the elites. Yeah. How does that? Uh, but, sorry. No. I was just going to say, but of course, in in modern language, democracies come to refer just to 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 rule by uh, by everyone. It doesn't have that um, pejorative sense that it would have had for Aristotle. Only it did. Um, but uh, the sort of, uh, I've, or how does that relate to the Republic? Because I've always heard, like, I've heard that the uh, sort of the bad version of democracy, or sorry, the, sorry, the good version was Republic and the bad version is democracy. That's how I had heard it. But 
Um, so where, what would like Aristotle have considered a republic? Uh, well, I mean, republic is a, is a Latin word. Um, oh, there you go. I mean, it, it's, it's ambiguous. I mean, it, can, sure. it has been used in different senses. It's been used in a very broad sense, just to refer to the body politic, the temporal society. Uh -huh. uh, and in that sense, it would be equivalent to Aristotle's word polis, the city-state. Uh, it's been used to refer to anything which isn't a hereditary uh, monarchy. Uh, but it's... Uh, um, yes, yeah, so that's probably its most common use uh, in, in more modern centuries. Um, I mean, but it's not always used in contradiction to monarchy as such, because um, uh, the Polish kings, uh, they were, uh, they were, if I'm, I believe I'm correct in saying they were elected like the Holy Roman emperors, uh, but they were called kings, yeah. but they were called kings of the Republic of Poland, which is a bit confusing for, for modern uh, I thought it was people. a commonwealth. No, no, well, I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know what the, what the Polish word would have been. Or I thought that's how the English translation of it would be Commonwealth instead of Republic, but I don't know. Yeah, well, if, it's, if it, it could be translated Republic, at least in, in, the broad, in the old sense of the word. Okay, yeah, the, definitely. The body politic. So we've discussed all the different types. Um, will you explain to us sort of the sort of the uh, main structure or how the church's political structure is supposed to be, you know, set up, like with that, uh, with the mixed uh, government in mind. Uh, are you referring to the, as it were, the internal life of the church? Yeah. Okay, so um, you've obviously got, uh, We've got the church as a whole, and you've got each diocese, um, and and really uh, the same mixed polity, as it's called, uh, should exist. I would say in in the church in both forms. So to take the uh, the, the, the highest the church as a whole, if you've obviously you've got the pope, who is uh, a monarch. Um, uh, he's he, he he's got the fullness of of all the three uh, powers: judicial, executive, and, and legislative. Um, you've got the um, uh, aristocratic quotation marks aristocratic element, uh, which you could see of as being uh, either the bishops or the cardinals. Um, the bishops, and this is quite an important point that's not always appreciated these days. The bishops are not. Uh, delegates of the Pope, they're not vicars of the Pope. Um, if they, you know, if they, if they're delinquent, then he can uh, replace them, but they have ordinary power in their own diocese. They are, they are the vicars of Christ within their own diocese. Um, so it's not as if the Pope is a, like the leader of a political party and um, you know, the bishops are, are meant to be um, uh, adopting his policies as such. Uh, and then the democratic element, well, that's rather reduced at the moment. Uh, it exists at least in the sense that any baptized male can become 
uh, a bishop or a um, or indeed the Pope um, if he's elected. But it's obviously rather unlikely that uh, a non uh, bishop, indeed a non cardinal, is going to be elected. Um, so in the in the early centuries, uh, the democratic element was more much more marked in that um, it was expected that the choice of a bishop would be uh, approved by the, the clergy and uh, laity of the diocese. Uh, so the laity weren't, weren't, going into, weren't going into the town hall and, um, and putting crosses against a, uh, a name on a ballot paper or uh, what, it, what is it you do over there? You, you punch, punch a hole in a ballot paper. Is that right? Yeah, and, you fill in like a bubble. Yeah, fill yeah. in a bubble. Okay, um, but they were they were gathering uh, in the cathedral or in the the square outside the cathedral, um, and they were making their their opinions known. Uh, and so the um, uh, the bishop of the, of the diocese uh, would normally be. Uh, Chosen with the consent, at least, of the clergy and the laity, uh, and that and that uh, that consent of the laity uh, would be the the democratic element uh, in the uh, in the church's makeup. And um, I think I think we quote in in the uh, in the book a saying from uh, Pope Saint Leo the First that uh, he who he who rules over all should be chosen by all. So you have these strong statements in, in the patristic era that, um, that it's, it's very fitting that uh, the faithful laity should um, have a role in determining, accepting uh, uh, their bishop. And obviously this means uh, this will only work if the bishops uh, do their job of uh, uh, keeping the uh, laity well instructed and um, being brave in uh, uh, disciplining and indeed excommunicating members of the laity who are you know, who are heretics or who are leading scand scandalous lives. But I think if if the bishops uh, do that job, then it would be a very healthy thing for the for the democratic element in the church to to revive in some way. Yeah. Very interesting. I mean, there, there is still a, a vestige of that in, in the right of uh, installation of a bishop. Uh, when, when a bishop um, uh, is installed, um, there is a point in the ceremony uh, in which the, uh, the people uh, ha have an opportunity to, um, to consent to it. But uh, I think they, they give out booklets uh, at the beginning of the ceremony, and it says, you know, something like, uh, uh, "At this point, the uh, the people say we do." Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't really doesn't really give them much choice. But um, here is you know, the if, answer. If yes, if the uh, you know, if the man being put forward is 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 clearly unworthy, then uh, then I would say the uh, the laity have the right to say uh, say we don't. <laughs> you, could you imagine that happening? It would be that, that uh, I think there are stories in the uh, church uh, 
where they would send a priest and these like to be the the pastor of a church or even a bishop of a church or of a diocese and the laity would know that these this person was this uh priest or bishop was a heretic and they would throw them out of the uh of the church so um it seems a little like that yes in in current canon law you're not allowed to lay hands on a bishop yeah i suppose if you hadn't if you hadn't been consecrated yet it'd be all right <laughs> it used to be i think you couldn't lay hands on a priest right uh i think so uh and in current current law i think you're not allowed to lay hands on a priest if you do so out of hatred for the priesthood oh okay so there's a uh, to that there's a caveat. No right? oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so you can uh, block, block the doorway. We have to block <laughs> the doorway without using force against the bishop. Now you're just giving everyone ideas. Yeah. <laughs> just kidding. Um, yeah. Um, so uh, if we want to wrap things up a bit, I just wanted to, uh, you know, I I found you on Twitter. That's how I. Uh, I found I found you actually, uh, and uh, that's why I reached out to you to come on to the podcast. But um, one of my favorite tweets of yours is in response to I think it was maybe a Jesuit or a Franciscan, maybe I can't remember which. It's probably insulting to both if it's not that um, <laughs> who uh, complained about not being able to uh, bless same sex unions. And you said that uh, it's not, and and they were like, I can I can um, I can bless a tractor, but I can't uh, bless people. And you said it's not a sin to be a tractor. Yes. So he, he was asking the question, so I was explaining. It <laughs> <laughs> was to be fair, he was neither a Jesuit nor a Franciscan. I don't. Oh, it wasn't. Um, I think so a diocesan priest. It's just that um, at least Jesuits just make me think of them as. Uh, makes me want to put them together because that's how they feel sometimes yeah. but yeah but yeah it was just a that's... fantastic tweet uh, Th thank you for being on twitter i i think uh there's a lot of people that appreciate uh your voice in the uh in the twitter sphere um, well thank you it's, it's a strange kind of world with its its own dangers and temptations but hopefully one can do a little bit of good in uh, you know, spreading some kinds of information or, or boosting morale. So that's what I hope I can do. Yeah, your your work, your writing, uh, everything you've uh, everything that I've interacted with that you've done is uh, just very helpful and inspiring. And uh, I'm really grateful for everything. Oh, thank you. It's very kind. Yeah, John, do you have anything to say? No, it was uh, great to meet you, Father, and great work. Yeah, so nice to meet you. So I will leave a link in the description for uh, to, for people to find uh, the book you and Alan Finister wrote together. And uh, is there anything, any other links that you might um, want people to know about, or anything that you want to uh, send people? Uh, you could put a link to the Dialogos Institute. So that's uh, uh, a group that um, he and I and various other people run, and it's um, it's got a blog which has uh, articles about sort of a wide variety of issues, but some of them are ones that we've touched on today, so that might be interesting for some of your listeners. Yeah. Okay. That sounds great. 
Um, thank you everyone for listening. Uh, please, uh, you know, show us your support, show father uh, your support. Um, I will also have his uh, Twitter, uh, his as uh, at on uh, Twitter in the, uh, in the description. So you can check him out. Um, but yeah, thank you everyone for, uh, for watching and listening and have a wonderful day.